0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: History is all around us there are secrets of our past around every corner hidden in our street names buried under our feet and in this series i'm going to be uncovering these secrets by exploring britain's most historic towns this is the original roman i want to discover which towns across the uk can claim to reveal the most about each period in british history (laughs) He's terrifying. I'll be deciphering clues in familiar landscapes, bringing lost landmarks back to life and peeling away the layers to reveal a unique view of these towns in all their former glory. Oh, look at this, look at this. From the Vikings to the Victorians, the Romans to the Tudors, I'll reveal the story of an era through the story of a single town. This week, I'm travelling back to the date we all know, 1066, when the Normans invaded from France, won the Battle of Hastings... Go! Ah! Normans! I'm coming to get you! Ah! ..and transformed our society and culture. People are a bit scared of you I'm a
2: bit scared of it. Don't be scared of you
1: <laughs> To see how the invaders established themselves, I've come to the one-time royal capital of England a place that once had the grandest buildings in the realm and Europe's largest cathedral. Oh, this is already exciting. Do be careful. If you really want to understand the Normans, Winchester is the perfect place. In September 1066, William the Conqueror landed with his army from northern France to seize the English throne. What happened next has been immortalised in the Bayer tapestry. William arrived with his new Norman ways and the latest continental advancements that over the next hundred years would transform our country amongst those advancements and crucial to Williams' victory at Hastings, elite armoured cavalry. After beating the Anglo-Saxons, the invaders marched on the rest of England. To enter Winchester in true Norman style, I'm approaching on horseback. The Normans rode into England with their cavalry and their immense army. But this was just the beginning of a long drawn out political, economic and cultural battle with the Anglo-Saxons, who had ruled England for over 500 years. The defeated Anglo-Saxons didn't take kindly to a takeover that would eject them from their positions of power. Rebellions erupted throughout England. If these men from northern France wanted to stay, they needed to capture key strategic targets, England's two most important cities, London and Winchester. Winchester was a key acquisition for the Normans. It was an important administrative centre. This is where the treasury and the records were kept. But it also had immense symbolic value. This was the royal seat of the kings of Wessex, who, starting with Alfred the Great, had unified England. So if the Normans really wanted to take the reins of power, they had to take Winchester. Today, Winchester is a beautiful, affluent cathedral town, but hidden under its pretty facade is a much grander and bloodier history. It rose to prominence as the capital of Wessex, the Anglo-Saxon kingdom whose rulers had united England 150 years before the Normans arrived. Winchester became the symbolic seat of England's kings. If William was to hold the crown, he had to make the royal city his own. And he didn't hang about. The Normans arrived here in Winchester just a month after Hastings. William the Conqueror wanted to take over the legacy of the former English kings and that included living in their palace. But he wanted his to be bigger and better than what had gone before. So he rebuilt it right here. The problem is that very little remains of this palace. So in order to discover the traces of it, I'm going to need some expert help. Professor Catherine Clark has spent months searching for clues to William's Palace. So this is where Catherine told me to meet her. It's a chocolate shop. But alongside all the confectionery, there's a very different treat in store.
3: Hello, hello. hello, hello.
1: <laughs> Why are we in a chocolate shop?
3: Well, if you look carefully at that wall over there, hiding behind all these lovely bars of chocolate, I think we found some wonderful 12th-century stonework. Is that an archway? It is. It's an archway, and you can see the column running down the left-hand side tucked away at the back of the shop. And you can see that it's really early stonework, because it's not really elaborate, high medieval Gothic architecture. Can you see how simple it is, really simple lines? And I think this archway, this stonework, would date probably to the 12th century. But what's interesting for us is I think it's really likely that it incorporates stone from William the Conqueror's Palace, specifically right. from his chapel. We can't get the shells out of the way. <laughs> I mean, want to just,
1: just eat the chocolate. This one's <laughs> like, yeah, if, we, if we can eat our way through that, maybe we could have yeah, taken that. the shells away. If you know where to look, there are clues all over the city centre to the once grand building that stood here. Is really not what you'd expect <laughs> to find bits of a normal palace okay, <laughs> this is
3: so, so funny i've not been in here before um i think we're going down here so oh stone walls i yeah, can see at the back there it looks promising doesn't it wow look at this oh, this is lovely it's all around us so do you think this is norman well the shape of the arches certainly suggests it's from that period 11th century 12th century again and this would have been quite a new kind of architecture in post-conquest England. The Anglo-Saxons did sometimes build with stone, but not often, they more often built with wood. With so few
1: physical traces of the palace left, Catherine has been using historical sources to fill in pieces of this puzzle. In a church that now stands on what was once William's Royal Chapel, she wants to show me what she's found.
3: So actually, when we go right back to the Norman period, we don't have maps in the way that we would think about them today. We don't have cartographic maps. Mm. And we often find ourselves using what we could think of as textual maps, using documents that actually map out the landscape for us. The so
1: descriptions rather than exactly. drawings.
3: And this is the book that's usually known as, as the Doomsday Book.
1: The Doomsday Book was England's first census, commissioned by William the Conqueror, compiled here and originally called the Book of Winchester.
3: I think that reflects the way that Winchester, before the conquest, had been a centre of uh, law-making, a royal centre um, in England. So mm. it was continuing that role in the early years after the conquest.
1: So we can think of it as being the administrative capital at this time. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: The bad news is that although it might be the Book of Winchester, Winchester isn't included uh, in the survey. And that's a bit of Doomsday. an oversight, isn't it? <laughs> it is. But there is some good news. There is a little clue tucked away in this entry for Kingsclere in Hampshire. Yeah, and this entry is about lands belonging to the Abbey of Saint Peter. Yeah, and it tells us that, that it tells us that amongst their holdings, they had land given to them by King William W. Rex. Rex. Yeah, yeah. And it says that that land was in exchange for land in Winchester, in qua domus regis est, in which the home of the king. Yeah, where where is the home of the king? So it's a clue that already in 1086. William the Conqueror has a palace in the middle of Winchester. Right.
1: Oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? Mm.
3: So, this is 1086, and we know it's standing
1: by then. So, sometime between 1066 and 1086, he starts to build that palace.
3: Yeah, it would have been a key objective early in William's reign to establish a hall here in Winchester. This is the site of the Anglo-Saxon royal residence, the pre-conquest royal palace, and William extends that. He creates a new hall in a slightly different location as a way of asserting his right to rule right there on the site of the Anglo-Saxon royal residence in the Anglo-Saxon royal city of Winchester.
1: Using Catherine's research for the first time in centuries, we can reveal what William's palace would have looked like. It's built in the center of the newly Norman town, replacing the old Anglo-Saxon complex and doubling its size. By constructing one of the grandest buildings in Britain here, William is demonstrating not only that he's inherited the legacy of former kings, but that he will make England even greater. It has everything the king will need to hold court and rule his kingdom from Winchester. Stables, defences, the national treasury and a royal chapel. William's grand new palace showed he was here to stay and Winchester would be his royal city too. But this conquest wasn't going to be easy. Next, I'm going to see how William defended his dynasty against wave after wave of persistent Anglo-Saxons. Oh. I'm just having a rest, just having a little rest. Um, I'm not giving up. I'm in Winchester, the best place to see what happened after 1066 when William the Conqueror was fighting to consolidate his victory and control England. Norman survival was hanging on a knife edge with rebellious Anglo-Saxons outnumbering them 200 to one. To defend his new kingdom, William introduced a French technological innovation, the castle. Winchester once had one of England's mightiest Norman castles, but today nothing remains. So I'm going to visit one of the finest surviving examples just a short drive away at Arundel. There, I'm meeting Director General and Master of the Royal Armouries, Dr Edward Impey, who knows a thing or two about castles. It's stunning, isn't
4: it? Yeah, it is yeah. stunning. It's meant to be stunning. You're meant to go, wow, when you see it.
1: Arundel Castle was built in 1067. It perfectly preserves the Norman Mott and Bailey defence system. What is a Mott and what is a Bailey? What's the definition?
4: We're standing in the bailey, which is the flat bit. Yeah. And that had a rampart around it, an earth and timber fence around it, a mm. ditch around the outside. So that's, that's the bailey bit. But that's the mot, which is a mound of earth, essentially, uh, with a fortification around the top. So it gives you a, um, a very strong central point, at the top of the mot, that's very, very difficult to capture.
1: How soon after the invasion did the Normans begin building castles? Immediately. Really?
4: Yeah in the year of the conquest william's already founding castles because he knows that they're absolutely essential to capturing and they're certainly to holding on to the country he's just grabbed
1: so was this very different from what had gone before what the anglo-saxons did i mean did they did they have castles in the same way as the normans did
4: nothing like this yeah they had fortified towns and they had lightly fortified houses but they're not castles in the sense that they could actually sustain a siege one of the reasons why the normans managed to conquer england is because the english didn't have castles One of the reasons why the Normans were there to stay was that they built castles. Yeah. And suddenly that thing arrives in your midst and, um, you know, it's time to give up, really. Um, And that's the point of it.
1: Over the next 40 years, the Normans asserted their new rule by building over 500 castles. They might have kept out the Anglo-Saxons, but can they keep out a 21st-century action woman like me? If I managed to get in through that gateway if i managed to set fire to the door batter it down then presumably by the time i arrived in the bailey Mm. the the troops here would have retreated up there so the next thing to do would be to try to take that
4: i think they might have confronted you in the gate or they might have built an internal barricade but the truth is you'd have to get out that mot. yeah and that would be quite an achievement that's about 35 degrees definitely be slippery very very steep um, people are throwing things at you, shooting arrows at you. I mean, it would be very, very difficult.
1: No. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, it's so heavy. Edward has brought a full kit of Anglo-Saxon battle gear. Just putting this on is enough effort. Right,
4: here's your axe.
1: Just in case I'm not weighed down enough already. What am I doing? Honestly. Oh, it looks even steeper, though. Closer we get. All right. you,
4: you'll need to take a run at it.
1: A run? In this?
4: Ready, steady, go! Ah!
1: Normans! I'm coming to get you! I am coming to get you! <laughs> I'm oh, can I use my axe to
5: help me get up the hill? <laughs> I'm coming! Oh.
1: I'm a one-woman, Anglo-Saxon fighting machine. (laughs) I'm just having a rest. Just having a little rest. Um, I'm not giving up. (laughs) I think there's a possibility this is an extremely good design of castle. I think
4: the point's been proved, hasn't it? And Mott's a pretty effective defence.
1: It is. Poor Anglo-Saxons. Having proven how fighting back against the Normans was an uphill battle, Edward now wants me to see how these defences helped William keep hold of Winchester. The site of the castle is now covered by much later buildings.
4: We're in the castle, We're in the very corner of it, we're in it.
6: Yeah,
1: And
4: yeah. The reason why it's here is partly because you can see where we overlook the town. Winchester had Roman walls around it, and the Roman walls took in this piece of high ground for sensible tactical reasons. You don't want the enemy looking down on your wall, so they yeah. included that. And when the Normans arrived, that's the obvious place to put the castle for two reasons. One, it's the highest bit of the town, so you can overlook the rest of it, including yeah. the cathedral and the royal palace, all down there on the flat bit of the town. And you've got three walls already made. So all you've got to do is dig a ditch along this side, which is to the south side, yeah, and then you've got a castle. Yeah. So this is one end of the castle, and the other end is a long way that way. It's about covered about four acres, so it's a big site.
1: Oh, right. Very little remains of the original Norman Castle today, but after a 1,000 years, we can bring it back to life to see how it once dominated Winchester. Far larger than Arundel. It's created by using a corner of the Roman walls and digging a huge ditch outside to create an impenetrable fortress. Although hastily built in wood in 1067, the castle is later rebuilt by the Normans as a mighty stone stronghold. A magnificent high motte stands at the southwest corner of Winchester. It's one of the strongest castles in England, making resistance futile and firmly establishing Winchester as a Norman town. Protected by their fortresses, the Normans held off the Anglo-Saxon revolts. As conquest settled into control, they turned their attention to their next battle, the fight for England's soul. William and his cronies may have been bloodthirsty warriors, but they were also extremely pious. They believed God controlled everything, including who was king. Seeking both heavenly favour and as a demonstration of his divine right to rule, William embarked on England's greatest ever church-building campaign. Within 50 years, every major religious site in England had been rebuilt, Norman-style, There's no better place to see this than Winchester, where work started on a new cathedral in 1079. To find out how important it was and how it was built, I'm meeting cathedral archaeologist Dr John Crook.
5: Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you.
7: Looking forward to this.
1: John's offered to show me bits of the cathedral strictly off limits to the average visitor. Oh, this is already exciting. Do be careful. Are Are they allowed? Can we bring them with us? I think the these actually
7: come. <laughs> yes, super.
1: So what do these paths represent?
7: In the 1960s, there was a big archaeological excavation here because it was realised this was the site of the Anglo-Saxon church. And uh, at the end of the excavation, it was decided to mark out the position of the walls in brick.
1: Yeah, that's lovely, actually, yeah. isn't well, it? It, it? It means it you can still see today. It gives a
7: sense of the scale of what was a very large and impressive Anglo-Saxon church.
1: So this was big, but it's completely dwarfed by the Norman church?
7: Yes. Actually, there was even a bit more at the West End. There were a couple of Western Towers, and for a time it was, I think one can safely say, the, the largest church in Christendom. It was here that William wanted to establish his seat, if you like, of government. It was here that he wore his crown at Easter whenever he was in England. It was here that he built the castle. It was here that he enlarged the royal palace. So it was natural enough, given the position that the church would have as part of running the country, that the cathedral should be the biggest as well.
1: John has made a fascinating discovery in his quest to find out how the cathedral was built. And it's hidden away underground in the original Norman crypt. What a wonderful crypt. This is fantastic.
7: It's a splendid space, isn't it? Yes, it is. Complete and unspoiled because of the water problem.
1: This hidden world also reveals a real problem with the site chosen for the cathedral. It was built on what used to be an ancient river, on wet and boggy land. The crypt still floods today. So the Norman builders must have been digging down into wet sediment to put the foundations in.
7: Yes, the whole area was levelled down to this level, the level at which we're in at the crypt, two metres or so below below the final level of most of the church, and that provided a surface on which... They could get out the Norman spray paint, or its equivalent, and get out ropes and things, and lay out where the pillars were going to be, where the walls were going to be, and so on. And then in those areas, they would dig out, for the sake of argument, uh, the area where a pillar was going to be, and they'd go down a bit further, until they, probably until they reached the water table, yeah. and then rammed in oak, sharpened oak piles, in order to be able to provide some sort of support.
1: using a combination of french know-how and english manpower the cathedral builders came up with an innovative engineering solution i think it's impressive when you look at the building that's standing above ground but in a way it's more impressive when you come down here and 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 see all of this an extraordinary amount of work this represents
7: yes people often say why on earth is winchester cathedral here they could have built it in a much better place if they'd gone up the hill a bit with decent yeah, foundations yeah. And of course the answer is it had to be here because this was the seat of royal power it was near to the near to the royal palace
1: the construction of Winchester Cathedral on such poor ground is one of the greatest engineering achievements of the medieval world But to really appreciate the sheer scale of the Norman footprint of the cathedral, you have to see it from above, and aerial archeologist Ben Robinson can help us out there.
8: Going right over the top of Winchester Cathedral now. The old Saxon Cathedral was a mightily impressive building, but it wasn't good enough for the Normans. They rebuilt the cathedral on a massive scale. No one had ever seen a building like this before, and it remains the longest medieval church you'll find
1: anywhere. So we've got a huge palace, a massive castle, and at the time, the biggest cathedral in Europe, all built by the Normans. And that's why Winchester is the best place to see the impact of the Norman invasion. The Normans stamped their authority over England and I'll see how this new way of life transformed our culture. I'll come face to face with the more caring side
9: of the invaders. There is a a social responsibility, I think, that is part of the Norman conquest. And experience their favourite pastime.
1: I'm in Winchester trying to understand how England was still being moulded into a Norman kingdom in the 100 years after 1066. To justify their reign, the foreigners built upon the legacy of the Anglo-Saxons by rebuilding the royal city. But the Normans didn't just renovate, they were great innovators too. A groundbreaking discovery has shown that it was the Normans who laid the foundations to that most British of institutions, our National Health Service. The clues come from human remains found by Dr Simon Roffey and his team during an archaeological excavation on the outskirts of Norman Winchester. This is one of how many skeletons then Simon?
9: This is one of um, 115 that were excavated from the site.
1: And what is the site then?
9: Well the site is a, a, a leprosy hospital found we believe in the late 11th century um, as a community, really, to, to cope with the, the sudden spread of leprosy um, in Western Europe at, at that time. Anybody who
1: knows me knows that bones are my thing, and these ones show very obvious signs of leprosy, an epidemic spread from the Middle East in the 11th century. That face is pretty horrific, isn't it, looking yeah, at that?
9: No, yeah, it is. It's, it's, this is one of our most visual examples of, of leprosy and, and the effects mm. it would have on the, on the individual.
1: It's quite a horrendously defiguring disease, mm. isn't it? Yeah,
9: but they yeah. were in a place where they were looked after. You know, their spiritual, their physical needs were, were, were taken care of.
1: As we lay out the rest of the skeleton, there's something curious about one of the legs. We've got the top of the fibula and the bottom of it is completely missing.
9: Mm-hmm. What we think's happened here is is that the foot has been surgically removed, it's been amputated. Yeah. Probably because of the state of it in life and it needed to be taken off. There's very little evidence for medical care or medicines. Hospitals Mm. were Mm. essentially a place to be cared for. But in this example, this individual, we believe, has had their foot amputated and also importantly, it's healed. So they've been treated after the uh, surgical removal.
1: Yeah. Do we know of any hospitals in Britain before this period?
9: There's no archaeological evidence for uh, hospitals in in England prior to the Norman Conquest. This is the earliest excavated hospital in the country. It's the earliest excavated leprosy hospital in Western Europe.
1: And it was leprosy that that really kicked it all off then? This was the disease that, that meant that hospitals were founded?
9: Well, there's an argument that could be made that the sudden rise and increase of leprosy really did act as a catalyst to the foundation of hospitals. Of course, later on, they become more general hospitals. So there is a a social responsibility i think that is part of the norman conquest so it isn't just all you know big match match and castle building there is a there is an element of compassion there as well and care for yeah. what's going on with perhaps those that are that are suffering in society
1: simon's research has revealed that winchester's hospital was established soon after the norman invasion and it fits with the wider picture The Normans were building hospitals, charitable houses and other welfare institutions right across England. So what did the Normans do for us? They invented hospitals. But the French interlopers weren't always so selfless. There were wide and deep divisions between the Norman nobles and the Anglo-Saxon peasants. And this was especially evident when it comes to what people were eating. At a pub that claims to be the oldest in Britain, I'm meeting aptly named food historian, Neil Buttery. Neil has promised me a Norman spread fit for Royal Winchester. There's quite a distinction, isn't there, about which English words and which French words we use to describe different types of meats in particular.
9: Yeah, absolutely. You now had two very distinct groups in society. You had the Poland Anglo-Saxons, which were still farming and were basically peasants, but the whole higher tier has been replaced with with Normans, so you've you've essentially got two different languages so words like mutton beef pork are all French words yeah because it was the noblemen that were eating these roast meats but it was the Anglo-Saxons who were farming them so they called it the Anglo-Saxon names like 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 ox and pig
6: yeah
1: so we're not eating meat this morning because I'm pescatarian Uh, what have we got instead what is
9: this so we've got eel Mm. people are a bit scared of eel. I'm a bit scared of it. Don't be scared of eel. <laughs> it's, it's really nice. It's a bit like salmon, I think. It was very, very commonly eaten in the whole of Britain, in fact, the whole of Europe.
6: Yeah.
9: Seafish was n- not really eaten unless it had been cured, because by the time you've travelled with your fish from the coast, by the time you've got to wherever you live, it's gone off.
6: Mm.
1: When I was promised a royal feast, I wasn't expecting eel pie. That looks amazing.
9: Looks good enough
1: to eat. Norman fine dining is an acquired taste. Instead of plates, they'd eat off stale bread. Quite, quite fluid running. inside. Oh, oh.
9: Oh, oh, oh. oh my goodness. Quick, quick. <laughs> quick oh my quick. goodness, me.
1: There were no forks and just one giant napkin. So you haven't got a table napkin, you just oh, have no, to use, use the tablecloth. Table. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I haven't actually been brave enough to try a piece of you yet. I've just been eating the crust just some of the sauce. <laughs> um, there's a bit of eel. Let's try that, then. That's really nice.
9: It's all right, isn't it? Yeah. yeah nothing to be scared of with eel.
1: It has got something of the texture of salmon, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I think I'm a convert. Ooh. That's really nice. After a season of feasting, the Normans' appetite turned to their favourite pastime, killing things. They didn't need to hunt down Anglo-Saxons anymore, but they could keep in practice by going after the wildlife. And it's no surprise that royal hunting grounds were created near Winchester. The extent of them is best seen from above, and our eye-in-the-sky Ben Robinson is exploring the local area.
8: The Normans also brought the idea of the forest to England. Forest didn't mean the same to them as it means to us today. It wasn't all about woodland. Essentially, it was a massive game reserve. It was so royalty could hunt deer. And the forest was much, much larger than it is today. At one point, it extended over about a third of lowland England
1: near Winchester was the greatest of Williams forests known to Normans as the New Forest. Following in their footsteps I'm off to hunt some animals but hoping to shoot them with a camera not arrows. Helping me do a spot of animal-friendly deer hunting is head keeper Andy Page and archaeologist Gareth Owen.
2: There's a whole raft of animals that they would hunt predominantly the deer and the boar were the prize animals Um, but the wolf um, badger, beaver, otter.
1: To preserve all this game, the Normans forced out the local humans and turned the forests into their pleasure parks.
2: This is a classic scene. I mean, you've got open areas, so you can see the quarry. If you imagine being here? You've got your huntsmen who are telling you where to go. You'll have the dogs following the scents. You've got room here to ride your horses through here. So, you know, you could potentially be galloping through this environment
1: Just as we're about to give up, we catch sight of something up ahead. To have tracked down the wild animals in the forest but heading out into the woods heavily armed was not without its risks as William the Conqueror's son William II would soon discover
2: an accident could easily happen whether it's shot through an arrow strung up by a tree branch so yes um, the, the arrow in the in the chest is is uh, a high risk and I'd say William the, the second William Rufus yeah. um, is they to have been shot um, by accident
1: by accident or not, that arrow, shot by a guest from France called Tyrrell, would prove fatal for William II in 1100.
2: Apparently the party had been split up um, and William and Tyrrell were by themselves and mm. a deer went past uh, until shot um, and missed. Uh, a second deer came through, he shot and apparently the arrow then hit a tree and was deflected, hitting William in the chest.
1: After William II was buried in Winchester, his younger brother Henry I became king. But then when Henry I died in 1135, he left no male heir. This created a succession crisis as the surviving grandchildren of William the Conqueror fought over the throne. Next I'll see how the conflict reached its climax right here in Royal Winchester.
10: So essentially then there's a siege within a siege? Yes, absolutely. Reports of Winchester burning to the ground.
1: I'm in Winchester, the city that William and his sons rebuilt to stake their claim as the rightful kings of England. But all was not rosy for the royal family. Henry I died in 1135 without a clear line of succession. His nephew Stephen grabbed the throne with the help of his brother, Henry of Blois, who, as Bishop of Winchester, took control of this key city. The bishop's reward made him one of the richest men in England, and he used his wealth to usher in a golden age of Norman culture centered on the royal city. His grandest commission was the beautiful, illuminated Winchester Bible. I've been given permission to see it up close with the Vice Dean of Winchester Cathedral, Canon Roland Ream.
3: It looks heavy. Yes.
8: I think that was part of the, the beauty of it, that it was such an extraordinary item. We have to just do these a few pages at a time so we don't put any strain at all on the manuscript. Now, where are we? Well, one full right there. We are with folio 148. What are you looking for? That's a beautiful
3: initial. Oh, wow.
8: Of the book of the prophet Jeremiah.
10: That's absolutely gorgeous.
8: This is the first thing you see in this initial is the gorgeous blue.
6: Yeah.
8: And many people yeah. don't know that blue was the most expensive pigment. The, the lapis lazuli. more, expensive, lazular, than more gold. expensive than the gold. It came from Afghanistan. This was a hundred years before Marco Polo discovered the Afghanistan. And so it, it came through a trade route that not many people knew about. It's such
1: a gorgeous piece of art in its own right. How does it compare with other examples of medieval artwork?
8: Well, there were several great giant Bibles that were made over the course of the 12th century, but we think that this is the finest example of them all.
1: To fully appreciate the craftsmanship of Norman England, I've come to meet calligrapher Patricia Lovett. She's going to teach me how to recreate a tiny piece of the Winchester Bible. It all starts with the material still precious today.
5: This is 23 and a half carat gold leaf. And there is something sort of quite visceral about us as humans and shiny yellow gold. And is there a spiritual quality to it because of totally. that? Totally. Well, it's the sun, it's the light from God, and of course the books with the gold in them, which actually were often paraded around in the church in services and the candlelight would reflect on the gold. Mm. And so the light looked as though it came from the book itself. Yeah, I mean, medieval yeah. people didn't understand the laws of reflection, of light reflection. So they didn't know that it was a light being reflected off the gold. It just looked as though this light, mm. and therefore there is the word of God coming from the book itself. Mm. Gold
1: was stuck to the calfskin pages mm. of the Bible using a glue called gesso.
5: Before it works, it has to be moistened. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to reactivate the stickiness in the gesso there, and I'm using the breath from the lower part of my lungs because that's where it's most moist. So this is going to look really strange and sound even worse. Okay. This is sort of like a dirty telephone breathing. And this is what was going on in the scriptorium? This is what was going on in the scriptorium. So this is mm-hmm. deep breathing.
6: <sighs>
5: <sighs> and that's just enough to make it now. sticky again. Three seconds to get that on. Yeah. Good luck. You've done this before, though. Once or twice.
1: <laughs> now it's time for my medieval Darth Vader impression. Okay. That's a massive piece of gold leaf. Oh. Okay. With the gold laid, the illustration was then painstakingly painted.
5: I think you must be a natural here, Alice. Good hand-eye coordination. Maybe I was a, a scribe in a former life. I think I could have quite happily been a scribe, actually.
1: Seeing the skill and time needed to create just a tiny part of the book makes the Winchester Bible even more impressive. It took 250 calf skins, pigments and precious metals from around the globe and a team of scribes up to 15 years to create. It was only possible because of Henry of Blois's magnificent wealth. Henry's money and control over Winchester would be crucial as William's grandchildren fought over the throne. At the heart of the conflict was the bishop's magnificent palace, built in the centre of the city. I've come to its ruins to meet medievalist Dr Catherine Wykert.
10: Good to see you. Happy to meet you. Thank you. Welcome to the Bishop's Palace. Isn't it wonderful? It's gorgeous, isn't it? So which area are we in at the moment? We are possibly? right now. This is the bit that our Henri Blois actually built. So when he became Bishop, he came to this palace with this side already existing. Yeah. And he builds on this part here. Adding a whole new hall and creating essentially a massive courtyard structure with buildings in between west hall and east hall all his and you can see some of the bits and pieces that still remain of of how magnificent it would have been bits of molding that you can still see in some of the windows
1: the palace is in ruins today but we can reconstruct it in all its original extraordinary glory at its center is a grand hall where henry held court Built in elaborate style, it has its own treasury, huge kitchens and courtyard. Half palace, half castle. Some of its walls are five metres thick, so they could withstand attack. And that would be vital as another of William's grandchildren, the Empress Matilda, returns to England, demanding to be recognised as the rightful heir. And she has supporters. The chaotic civil war that followed is known as the anarchy. So Stephen, at this point, had become king. He had Henry's support. I can't imagine Matilda was particularly happy about that.
10: No, of course not. This is her inheritance. And she thinks, you know, of course, she wants to get this back. By the time we hit 1141, you've got all kinds of issues that are happening as well with allegiances changing. And 1141 is a particularly active year in terms of the anarchy. You have the battle at Lincoln, first and foremost, where King Stephen is actually captured by Matilda's men. Now, at this point, it would would appear to be game over. Your king has been captured. Mm. Where do you go to from there? so Henry of Winchester actually begins negotiation with Matilda's people starts to begin to find a way to bring her peacefully onto the throne and end the conflicts Bishop Henry
1: ever the pragmatist helped Matilda march into London hoping she would be able to take control but the Londoners stayed loyal to King Stephen and chased her out of their city she fled back to Winchester but now Henry was having second thoughts
10: So at that point, is Henry of Blois still on her side? It depends on who you ask at that moment more than anything else. He was technically, although uh, there's a great line of one of the chroniclers saying that as the Empress Matilda showed up at one gate at Winchester, the Bishop Henry was leaving by the other.
1: Henry ran away, switching sides again, offering his support to the Queen, King Stephen's imprisoned wife. Empress Matilda needed Henry to
10: reconsider the Empress Matilda besieges Winchester, sieges the bishop's palace yeah. in order to compel the bishop to come back and negotiate with her.
1: So does he come
10: back? He does not. What ends up happening is that the Queen and a large force of mercenaries and Londoners come down to Winchester in order to besiege the siege. With Empress Matilda's forces besieging Henry's palace, the
1: Queen's army surrounded the whole city. Fighting quickly broke out, and soon Winchester was engulfed in flames. Empress Matilda's army turned to flee, but as they retreated, they were butchered. Henry of Blois held talks to end the anarchy. King Stephen was released and eventually agreed that after he died, the crown would pass to Matilda's son. That marked the beginning of a new dynasty the Plantagenets and it meant a change of fortune for Winchester too. After the chaos of the Civil War, work began on rebuilding Winchester, but it would never be as preeminent a city as it had been. And the symbolic importance of Winchester that had made it so crucial for William to have a presence here, have a palace here, was really no longer relevant. England was well-established as a unified country, and its rulers, didn't need to hark back to Alfred the Great. The once foreign Normans were now the English establishment. Winchester had fulfilled its purpose. When the Plantagenet dynasty rose in 1154, the treasury and civil service were moved to London. The golden age of Royal Winchester was over. The Norman invasion would change the country forever. There was a new ruling elite, a new social structure and a new language of power. And Winchester was at the centre of the action. When William arrived, he took control of the city that was the symbolic heart of England. He creates a grand palace to rule from and builds an impenetrable castle to defend the town. Such is the importance of Winchester that it has the largest cathedral in the world and Henry of Blois' magnificent palace at its heart. But when the city is burned down at the end of the Norman Civil War, it's never rebuilt as a grand royal capital. From invasion to anarchy, the story of Winchester perfectly encapsulates the Norman period. Winchester is Britain's most Norman town.
7: Coming up next, food for thought, as the diet testers explore how fasting affects the mind and body.